Hello once again, this is Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, coming up on this episode, we've got a, a little bit to talk about. Uh, they've been digging around on the moon. I know that's true. Um, humans have done it. But this is a, the case of uh, ground-penetrating radar, and they've made some really fascinating discoveries about our lunar buddy. Uh, and uh, Perseverance, which is sort of trundling around on the surface of Mars looking for, you know, life, etc., has uh, just taken a bit of a peek upwards and gone, oh, sunspot on the moon, heading for Earth. I better tell them. So we'll talk about that. And audience questions from Rusty, Rennie and Cowboy, all coming up on this episode of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And joining us to talk about all of that is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello. Hello, Andrew. And just to, um, in case your intro there caused any alarm among our listeners, the sunspot is actually not on the moon, it's on the sun. Oh, did Uh, I say the moon? (laughs) That would be weird. It would be weird, but sunspots on the moon, I don't know. I quite like the sound of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe in its turbulent past. Yes, in its turbulent past. That's right, which is um, probably one of the things that we'll get onto. So, well, uh, might as well talk about it straight away and get get straight into it because I mean it is our nearest neighbour, astronomically speaking, and we're doing a lot of stuff to get there. The uh, uh, the, the Indians uh, the other day uh, landed there, and um, to much fanfare, I might add, they are thrilled. They are cock a hoop. The uh, uh, Indian yeah. prime minister's uh, jumping for joy. I think most um, the Indian population are as well. It's oh, such a big deal, and it's fabulous and massive rightly, deal. Rightly so. Uh, and and, because- and if you were laying bets like fifty years ago as to which nation would be fourth to land on the moon, you wouldn't have said India, I don't reckon. No, and I, I think you know if you'd put bets on who was going to successfully touch down at the near the moon's south pole, you, you fire. Betted the opposition on that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Russia tried but crashed, uh, and um, India slipped in as the uh, as the tortoise in that particular race. But uh, yeah, they're they're doing great things. But this particular story centres around China's exploration of the moon, and the Chang'e four mission uh, continues to make uh, leaps and bounds, which is very exciting. Uh, it's an it's a fantastic project, and you know I keep um, in in my uh, looking out in the on the news uh, on on the news sources and um, uh, news wires, I suppose is the correct way to say that. I um, uh, and often see stories coming from Chang'e Four that uh, they've you know little discoveries that um, that that always make you think, well, this spacecraft is doing great stuff. Mm. Uh, and it, actually, what's nice about our two stories today, Andrew, is they both come from rovers, but on different worlds uh, in the solar system. Yes. Uh, and they're looking in opposite directions. Uh, because Chang'e 4, uh, as I think we've discussed before, has a ground-penetrating radar on board, um, as did its predecessor, actually, the one that, um, that broke down and the radar worked very well, but the wheels didn't. That was the, the <laughs> earlier version of... Uh, I think that was Chamia 3. Excuse me a minute. I'm just going to... Yeah, you'd, you'd think with the fact that we uh, invented the wheel so long ago, we'd be getting it right by now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. It's probably the tyres on the moon's surface are a bit, uh, you know, a bit to, bit to take in there. Yeah. Uh, and 
yeah, we'll see how the um, you know the Indian rover, uh, which uh, is already on the surface and doing great things. Anyway, mm. uh, back to Changi Four. So its ground penetrating radar um, has sent back information over the five years since Changi landed. It's 2018 when that spacecraft touched down on the far side of the moon. Incredible! Wow. That's gone so, fast, hasn't it? That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, there's, uh, there's a, uh, you know, the, we've we've seen records of uh, of the strata down to about forty meters uh, so far, um, and that, uh, it, you know, has told us quite a lot about what's under the surface. But there's been some new research uh, which uh, comes from uh, a, a mixture of Chinese and I think UK scientists. Uh, the University of Aberdeen in Scotland is one of the participating organizations as well as the Chinese Academy of Science and uh, Shenzhen University. Um, they have done some work uh, tweaking the data and they've now got a map that goes down to 300 meters below the surface. Uh, so it is, that's extraordinary. Uh, you yes. know, what a way to do lunar geology or selenology, it probably should be called. Um the uh, the the study of uh, of the rock strata underneath the moon gives us insights mm. underneath the moon's surface gives us insights into uh, what the history of the moon might have looked like. Uh, we've got a pretty good idea already from studies that have been done previously, uh, including the idea that the moon came into being when an object that we call Thea, perhaps about the size of Mars, collided with the Earth in the Earth's very early history. Uh, yeah. something like four and a half billion years ago, um, and that formed the moon. It's actually one reason why the moon is made of similar rock to the Earth, because uh, a lot of it came from Earth. Um, but there's also, um, we know that the subsequent history of the moon had uh, was pretty eventful, because at that time, uh, the solar system was a wild and woolly place with um, lots of things charging around and colliding with each other. Uh, and uh, in particular, there's a feature on the far side of the moon called the Aitken South Pole Basin, um, which is a quite deep crater. So it's actually, I think it's one of the biggest impact basins in the solar system that we wow. can still observe. Uh, and that's obviously something very large, very early in the history of the moon, uh, hit it there. But there, are, there, were, there have been other large collisions as well. And we know... Uh, that some of those um, produce volcanic, uh, you know, volcanic activity. So when you look at the when you look at the moon, even just with the unaided eye, you can see the grey patches on it, which are what we call maria, the Latin for seas, because they were all, always called seas in the old days, and they are actually lava plains, uh, mostly basalt on the lunar surface, um, and they are basically filling in. Uh, the dints in the surface uh, that were caused by impact, yeah, uh, and so that's you know that's um, uh, something that we observe on the near side of the moon. Now, Chang is on the back side of the moon, looking down uh, into a layer that is not sitting in uh, a, a, it, it's not actually sitting in one of the maria because there aren't many maria on the back surface of the moon. It's sitting in a in a plane, a relatively flat plane, but it's. Uh, a different sort of geology. But mm. what they have discovered is that uh, round about 300 metres below the surface, um, you find uh, essentially layers of lava. You find these lava flows that might mean 
that at some time in the distant past, there were what we now call Maria, uh, like the ones on the on the side of the moon that faces us. And there might have been those things on the backside as well, uh, but they've been covered up um, by uh, successive layers of material, which may well have come from the early history of the formation of the moon, because we think the the the, the Far, the far side of the moon has a thicker crust. And we think that's because uh, in the early history, uh, when the Earth itself was very hot, the side that was facing Earth got hotter. Uh, and so all the sort of rocky type materials, which were currently vapor at that time, they condensed on the cold backside, not on the hot near side, and making the thicker crust on the backside. So I think this kind of supports that view. So they've got, um, uh, you know, 300 metres of various layers of material, uh, including broken rock, uh, dust, soil, um, that sort of thing. But then, uh, and apparently there's evidence for a, a, a crater as well that is built well below the surface, yes. one that's been covered up, uh, and the layers of lava at the bottom, uh, showing that, yes, there was volcanic activity uh, certainly early on in the, uh, in the, you know, in the, in the history of the moon. So they, they've used ground-penetrating radar and, and had a, a bit of a look under the surface uh, because up until now we've only really been able to scratch the surface literally and figure, figuratively. Um, but, and they've found, uh, well, not surprisingly, they've found rocks and soil and mm -hmm. lava and, uh, you know, a bit of the history. Um, what might be further down inside beyond 300 metres? Um, probably thicker layers of lava because what what they when when they penetrated these layers of lava, which are probably about the limits of of how far down they could go with this with these data, uh, they found that the layers um, as you as you get higher up, the layers get thinner, the lava layers get thinner, and so it, it's you know it's sort of you can easily imagine that there were episodes of volcanic activity. Uh, where things were pretty hot to start with, so you got lots of lava, and the fissures, the the the, the you know the cracks in the ground were wider. Um, you'd get more lava flows in the earlier uh, time, and then as that was covered up, the lava flows would get steadily thinner as the temperature falls, and as the um, as the as the cracks in the rock close up because they're, they're you know because of this cooling. Mm. Um, so that sort of suggests that if you could look further down still, you'd find thicker layers of lava. Um, and I don't know whether we will be able to do that, but they, I think these authors are fairly confident that we might get more, still more data from the Chang'e 4 uh, ground-penetrating radar. So it's a really interesting uh, page to watch, if I can put it that way, on the web uh, to see what um, what further we might learn from this quite yeah. remarkable little spacecraft on the far side of the It's moon. really terrific, isn't it? They're doing great things. Are we likely to, is the moon likely to have a core? Yeah, we think it does. Um, uh, it's not really known um, what it is like, probably cold, uh, because the moon doesn't have a magnetic field. Uh, if the moon had a, a, a you know molten iron core like the Earth does, uh, there will probably be more magnetism than there is on the moon. So the suspicion is that there is a metallic core at the centre of the moon. Uh, that's the natural thing for any kind of planetary object that the iron sinks to the middle uh, because its own gravity pulls it down. 
uh, yeah. until you get the metallic core. And iron is a very common element in, in the universe. So you get a metallic core. Um, but uh, as I said, the thinking is that that is pretty cold uh, on the moon. Yeah. Um, I mean, the evidence is suggesting that the moon did sort of get forged out of the earth after the um, impact of Thea. There, there are a few other theories like it was captured. Uh, one wonders um, uh, what it would have been like had it been captured. We haven't dismissed that theory, but I think we've almost written it off. Uh, but if it was a captured object, it probably would be a very different object uh, in comparison to what we've learned about the moon. Yeah, that, that's right. So it was certainly, um, um, you know, until the Apollo era, uh, all bets were off as to how the moon was formed. Yeah. And in fact, a, a theory um, that owed its origin to um, George Darwin, who was Charles Darwin's son. George Darwin was actually an astronomer. And he was interested in the origin of worlds rather than the origin of species like his dad. Uh, and he had this postulate that uh, the early Earth was rotating so fast that centrifugal force pulled off the uh, equatorial layers to form the moon. Mm. Um, now, that doesn't work because we don't believe the Earth ever rotated fast enough to do that. Uh, but uh, once Apollo astronauts brought back moon rocks, and it was discovered that their sort of isotope ratios in the in the uh, material of those rocks is identical with Earth. That said, okay, you've got an origin where the moon has come from the Earth. Yeah. Um, and just just going through the history of this a little bit, the um, and we've talked about this before, I know, but uh, one of the problems with the theor the Thea theory or Tier, you might call it T H I T H E I R T H E I A is the name and it, uh, in I think in Greek mythology Tia is the mother of the moon uh, so that's where it comes from so this body Tia um, the pro one of the problems with that theory is that in most collision scenar scenarios you end up with a moon that's made more of the rock from Tia than rock from the earth yeah and that was always seen as a problem until it's probably about three years ago now researchers if I remember rightly they're in Japan. Uh, they pointed out that if the moon was, uh, if the Earth still had a molten surface when the Tia impact took place, and it may well have done because mm. it was very early in the history, you know, it was probably the lava ocean uh, period of the Earth's history, which doesn't bear thinking about. No, nope. uh, and you splat this object into a into a wet Earth, and it turns out that theoretically, then. You can predict that you're getting you're going to get um, a moon that's made of Earth rock rather than Tia rock. That so, makes perfect sense. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so that's the, I think that's the current best bet for the origin of the moon. Yeah, sounds like it. All right. Um, we will watch with interest uh, with, uh, on the uh, the travels of uh, Chang'e Four. But if you'd like to read up on that story, it's on the phys.org website. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Space nuts. From one rover to another, Fred, let's uh, point our uh, investigative finger at uh, the Perseverance rover on Mars, which has been moving around on the surface uh, very successfully, uh, looking for things that might one day um, um, tell us more about the, the red planet. Uh, but it just uh, had a bit of a, a look around the other day and looked up and went, oh, 
There's a sunspot. Don't like the look of that. It's um, it's heading towards Earth because uh, yeah. we we can't see it yet, but they can see it on Mars. Isn't that extraordinary? I'm a bit annoyed that they didn't tell us sooner. <laughs> well, those pesky Martians. Yes, it's uh, Martians, otherwise known as uh, NASA mission scientists, uh, who are driving the rover. Um, so, I, probably a little-known fact about Perseverance. Um, we, I guess, we all know it's got a something called the mast cam, uh, which is a camera on a mast, as you might expect. Um, mm. an, an amazing, an amazingly useful piece of equipment, uh, and it's been used to photograph all kinds of things, including uh, the um, uh, Ingenuity helicopter. Uh, yeah. Uh, great stuff. But also, every day, um, a photograph is taken, excuse me, a photograph is taken of the sun uh, mm. by the mass cam. So it looks up every day to the sun and takes an image. And that's partly, uh, it's, it's okay, it's to look at the sun, but it's partly to be able to sort of uh, estimate the amount of dust that there is around them in the atmosphere. Um, because uh, dust is always present on Mars. Uh, that's why the atmosphere is pink rather than blue, or the sky is pink rather than blue. Uh, and so, um, and you know, dust storms can be extremely uh, difficult uh, events on Mars because you get global dust storms. We had one, I think it was back in 2019, 2018, or I think it's 2018, the last big one, last global dust storm. Um, which covered Curiosity with a lot of dust. Um, Perseverance wasn't there then, mm. uh, so um, so you, you're always on the on the lookout to see how much dust there is in the atmosphere, just so you kind of know what's coming. Yeah. And, you do, and so in doing that, obviously, you get a collection of images of the sun. But on one taken recently, a large, very large sunspot uh, group was uh, seen on the solar surface. And so, uh, the, the orientation of Mars with respect to the Earth means that we cannot actually see that sunspot uh, because the sun's rotation hasn't brought it round to face the Earth yet. So um, now by the time this episode goes to air, that sunspot might be, might be visible, um, Andrew, uh, and we'll know whether we're going to get solar flares and solar storms and mm. the kind of you know, things that sunspots breed. Sunspots are hotbeds of magnetic activity on the sun and they're where solar flares originate. And, um, you know, th that sort of event can throw lots and lots of subatomic particles at high velocities uh, into the sun's environment, some of which might hit the Earth at some point. In which case yeah, and that's, that's the concern, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Because uh, with all the electronics we are so reliant on these days, uh, a direct hit from a massive solar flare is um, is not just going to be something that we can go, oh, well, you know, no big deal. <laughs> it will be a big deal. It could be, um, given, as you say, our uh, reliance on electronics, particularly space-borne electronics, because mm. uh, um, s spacecraft are uh, in low Earth orbit. They're still protected by the, the Earth's geomagnetic field. Uh, once you get to geostationary orbit, though, uh, you're, you're outside that cocoon of protection. And so that's when you start worrying about your spacecraft electronics getting fried. Um, and of course, even on the ground, you can get uh, effects from uh, geomagnetic storms. I keep talking about it, the event in 1989, when uh, a geomagnetic storm kind of blew all the fuses in, uh, I think it's Quebec province, if I remember rightly. 
and something like 9 million customers in Canada lost, lost their power supply for several hours mm. uh, because, um, because all, the, all the overload switches tripped because of the magnetism that these subatomic particles brought with them. Yes, uh, it, 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 and, and there's been some famous cases, that one back in the uh, early, oh, when was it, uh, early 1900s, uh, late 1800s, something uh, like that with the telegraph it, System. Yeah, that's right. That was the Carrington event, which that's I think right. was 1860s. Yeah, nine sticks in my mind. That might be the wrong date, but it was that sort of era. And you're right. It was the, the the infancy of the telegraph, and a lot of telegraph wires burned out because the event was so strong. That was the strongest recorded uh, geomagnetic storm in history. Mm. Uh, so, um, and and it came from a particularly active region on the sun. In fact, I think a bright spot was observed in the sunspot at the same time. And that's where the name Carrington comes from, because I think that was the astronomer, the name of the astronomer who observed it. Uh, so the solar flare, yeah, which, um, which certainly affected uh, planet Earth. Yes, indeed. And uh, the, um, the NOAA organization, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, is responsible for basically offering alerts for these particular events and they they basically um, continually update people that um, these these events are happening and that and they do happen a lot more often than we think they just don't yeah. seem to affect us all that much but they have had situations where there've been big blackout zones uh, and uh, there you know was a case a couple of years ago where a big sort of chunk of the Pacific Ocean was blacked out and they lost communications with everything that was basically on the water around that area because uh, of, of what happened. Uh, so they're always uh, putting out warnings, and sometimes they're small warnings, sometimes they're bigger. Um, but it also gives people a bit of excitement too because you might get some really good auroras to, to look at yes, that's right. sort of hitting the right part of the planet. But the big danger, I suppose, is that we will have a massive sunspot in direct line with Earth and a massive solar flare as a consequence, and that's the one that emergency services are really focused on, and uh, they, they do uh, a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of work going on these days uh, to ready us for such an eventuality. Hopefully, never, but it it, it is happening in micro pockets, if you like, yeah, um, yeah, around the planet all the time. But what we're really worried about is a catastrophic event, something so big that it wipes out. You know, big sections of a country or, or or a continent or something like that. Yeah, in terms of the power supplies and, yeah, and yeah. the electronic. Um, I mean, it, it's certainly true that uh, protections are built in uh, when people design these things. They know that there's, especially bearing in mind the Carrington event, which which um, was something that. Um, I don't think it would be catastrophic today, but I think it would make an impact. It would certainly mm. cause power failures and things of that sort, and it may damage spacecraft as well. A lot of uh, satellites have at least one side of them hardened against radiation, uh, so with thicker metal uh, in their, you know, in the chassis, the, the spacecraft bus. Uh, so, you, and you turn that side uh, towards the incoming particles if you can. Uh, that's the way these satellite operators yeah. work. Yeah, we we know the the sun operates on a, an eleven year cycle, and uh, it's been it's been sort of going through a different phase recently, hasn't it? 
we're, we're coming out of uh, a minimum. So we're sort of heading towards the solar maximum time when you do get more of these events. Right. Uh, so, yes, that's correct. Do we know why that happens, why it cycles like this? Um, it it's, was baffling until really quite recently, but there's now uh, an understanding of processes taking place within the outer layers of the sun uh, and something called the, the solar conveyor belt, um, which is, uh, you know, if you imagine a fictitious conveyor belt running from the sun's pole to its equator, uh, that is a magnetic phenomenon that carries the sunspots further <clears throat> away from the equator. There's, um, it's been well, well known, probably for getting on for a couple of hundred years, actually, uh, that as the sunspot cycle goes through, sunspots appear at different latitudes. If I remember rightly, uh, they, uh, their latitude increases as the sunspot cycle goes through. Mm. And that's ought to be due to this conveyor belt effect carrying things under the surface. And it's all about magnetism. It really is all based on intense magnetic fields. So the understanding is still not perfect, but I think we know a lot more than we're used to about this sort of thing. Yeah. I was just uh, having a glance at the Carrington event to try and learn more about it while we were talking. And what was extraordinary was uh, the effect it had, uh, not so much on the telegraph, even though that was uh, a telling factor, but uh, apparently it caused auroras that were so bright that it woke people up. The glow was so intense. Yeah, yeah that's right. Which, yeah, can you imagine that? Yeah. And uh, the um, the auroras were seen at very low latitudes, uh, Mexico, Cuba, Hawaii, Queensland in Australia, Japan, China. They all saw the effect of this one geomagnetic storm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it must have been intense. Can you yeah. just imagine that? Yeah, being woken up by the aurora, that's quite <laughs> yeah. a usual thing. Because of the glow. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, amazing, amazing stuff. So, um, <laughs> uh, uh, so with this particular um, hole that they've a uh, sunspot that they've observed through perseverance, uh, how long will it take? Did you say to, to swing around and be yeah, visible sure. to us? Like a few days, a week, or something like that. Oh, is that all? Yeah, it's not very long. Okay, the sun's, so. sun's rotation is about it's about a month. It's I think it's twenty seven days on the. Quite if I remember. All right, quicker than I thought. Okay, so uh, it is um, uh, it is a good thing that perseverance is there and can spot these things for yeah, us. Right. Not that we can do much about it, because if uh, if it turns out that this sunspot is going to be in direct line with Earth, well, we're just going to have to grin and yeah. bear it, and um, yeah. you know, put our aluminium hats on <laughs> or paper bags. Um, the um, <laughs> I, I should just add though, um, perseverance isn't the only thing that's looking at the sun from different angles. There's a whole flotilla of spacecraft oh, of which are specifically there to observe the sun. Mm. Uh, so they'll they'll tell us more about it as time goes on. But uh, I just thought it was really neat that we we see from one planet a different view of the sun and, um, and you know, get a forewarning, as you said. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Space.com is where you can find that story about uh, the sunspot. They've got a, a great photo of it too from Perseverance. So, uh, yeah. Uh, and the uh, mandatory red ring yes, added, added to the photo so you can see where the sunspot is just in case you don't know what you're looking for. I think most people know what a sunspot look like. Uh, it looks like. Uh, this is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and King with a go. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, shall we answer some questions? Ooh, let's do that. Or we'll just play them and go, uh, I don't know. 
All right. Uh, first one comes from one of our regulars. It is Rusty from Donnybrook. G'day, Fred and Andrew. It's Rusty in Donnybrook. Fred, you seem to have some similar ideas that Adrian Berry expressed in his prophetic book, The Next 10,000 Years, which he wrote in 1974. Uh, did his work have uh, any influence on you? You seem to have some similar ideas there. Um, just wondering to what extent that might have been. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Rusty. All right. Well, he's kind of put you on the spot there, Fred. <laughs> well, I can tell, I can tell Rusty, uh, the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> never, never heard of him, mate. No, no. Oh, wow. Uh, I know I'm, I'm very poorly read when it comes to things like that. I should check it out though. Uh, thank you, Rusty, for that. I'll go, and have a look at uh, a book. Well, 1974, that's yeah. um, a time when I was certainly uh, very active in the in the space world. Um, um, I was working at the Royal Greenwich Observatory in 1974 on planetary ephemerides. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what they are? No. <laughs> Tables of where they are, their positions. Um, and uh, so uh, my, the bit of the Royal Greenwich Observatory I was working on at was called Her Majesty's Nautical Almanac Office, and it was formed uh, in the sixth. Uh, no, and uh, yes, I think it was uh, might have been Halley who formed it okay. uh, back in the day. Um, and um, we we were all about planetary positions, about planetary orbits. So the research was, you know, in, in looking at the orbits of planets and um, how they interact with with each other. So that's what I was doing then. Um, I wasn't. Quite, I, I was still switched on to media stuff a bit because we um, we used to get calls from people wanting to know what they'd seen in the sky and things like that, and I had a lot to do with that. Uh, but that book eluded me, so I will check it out. Thank you very much, uh, Rusty, for pointing it out. Yeah, uh, I've just done a quick um, squeeze for it. It's on uh, all of the major book platforms, but uh, it basically is uh, Adrian's... Um, uh, work in in trying to figure out what might happen in the universe um, and so on for the next uh, ten thousand years, uh, and I suppose um, you know we're only just a bit past the first part of that ten thousand years in in real terms. So uh, maybe not much has changed, but I, we've learned so much in s such a sure. short time. Yeah. It's possible that some of the stuff he's predicted might not have yeah. happened the way he thought, but um, apparently he passed away in 2016. But, uh, yeah, the next 10,000 years, a vision of a man's future in the universe is, um, yeah, could be a good read. So look out for that one. Uh, now, Fred, we uh, have an, another semi-regular in the form of Rennie who has got <laughs> three questions for us. Could have taken up the whole segment. Hi, this is Rennie Trout from West Hills, California. I always enjoy each show. I have three questions, if you could answer, please. If the Earth was a moon, how different would life have formed on Earth if it was a moon? And uh, any other insights into what the world would be like if it was a moon instead of a planet? Uh, second question, will quantum computing give us any insight 
or maybe the origins uh, of everything and, and make things clearer to us as far as the quantum world and uh, larger masses that work with Newton's laws. And the last question is, could there be elements anywhere in the universe that are not on the elemental table? Thank you. Love the show. Thank you, Rennie. Uh, I can answer the last one, yes, because they leave gaps in it on purpose just for that very reason. Is that right, Fred? Uh, yeah, although... Potentially. Yes, yes. Um, it's, a re it's a really good question. That, I mean, we're talking about the periodic table here. And, yeah. Um, uh, the, my understanding is it's pretty complete... Okay, uh, because you know, there's a bit of history with this. Uh, just answering Rennie's last question first, uh, in that one of if we go back, um, yeah, a hundred years actually, uh, people were still baffled by the spectrum lines from nebulae. So, nebulae, clouds of gas that are excited by usually a nearby star, <clears throat> uh, causing them to, to, to glow uh, with um, characteristic colours. And those colours uh, come from the emission of, of light from elements at particular wavelengths. So hydrogen, for example, uh, has a very strong emission in the red part of the spectrum. It's a line, an emission line called hydrogen alpha. And then there's a whole sequence of them. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, hydrogen beta is actually in the blue. <clears throat> anyway, um, there was a, a line found in nebulae, which was a very bright one, a very bright green line, um, which could not be identified with any known element on Earth. So the way you do this, you look for things in space and you can uh, excite a gas on Earth with an electric current or something and it, gl it glows with a characteristic glow. Sodium is the best known one. You remember the old sodium vapor lamps that have that orange, oh, yeah. yellow. That's a single effectively a single line uh, in what's called an emission line just they're just emitting one characteristic color and if you find that color in space you know that the sodium there mm. so they found this green line but it was not uh, associated with any known element on earth and at that time towards the end of the 19th century the periodic table was being built up and there weren't any gaps uh, and that was why People were baffled by this because not only did they not know what this is, they could not see any way in which an element could exist that could cause that line. Um, they'd given it a name, by the way. They call it nebulium. Uh, nebulium was supposed to be this element that was in a uh, in a, a, a only in nebulae, hence the name nebula yeah. being a Latin word for mist. Um, so Nebulium was a mystery, and it was actually a man called Ira Bowen. Uh, it was an American astronomer who, in the 1920s, worked out what it was. And it's actually, uh, if I remember rightly, it's oxygen, uh, which is behaving in a way that it doesn't on Earth because the pressure is so low in the nebulae. The pressure in nebulae is far lower than any you know vacuum that you could create on Earth. Uh, or it was at that time. And so um, we'd never seen the fact that um, oxygen could emit what were called forbidden lines. Forbidden lines are forbidden 
energy energy jumps in the electrons. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're forbidden on Earth because there's too, the pressure's too high, but they're not forbidden in space. And he made the breakthrough that said, well, what we're seeing is oxygen, not not some new element. So nebulum went into the waste bins. And and so it was the periodic table that kind of helped with that. So I think the answer is no uh, to Rene's last question about will there be elements that we we um, that don't fit into the periodic table. Um, okay. Well, going, I, I'm going to say maybe. I like to be a bit more... Controversial. Yeah. Yeah. I just like to stir the pot. Um, are we going to keep going backwards, or do you want to? Yeah, let's go backwards. <laughs> All right, quantum, quantum computing. What what's that going to do for us? Think, uh, yeah, so it is clearly will um, revolutionise the way we handle data um, because you've got so much more power available in a quantum computer than you have with a, a standard uh, um, computer where you've just got binary bits. Yeah, one I, or I, zero. Yeah, my my computer, even though it's you know not very old, um, is just about capable of adding basic numbers. So yours has only got zeros. It doesn't have any ones. It? It's definitely a zero. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I think for handling large data sets, uh, clever analysis, things like that, I think that's where we're going to find quantum computing coming to our assistance. Whether it will of itself let us probe the quantum world any deeper. Uh, I don't know. It, it might give us better tools to do that, but in, in terms of computation, actually calculating things, yeah. but um, whether it's going to give us insights, maybe it will. I don't know. Maybe we'll find out from quantum computing that things in the quantum world don't behave quite as we thought they did. Uh, so, yeah, there, there is a possibility there, Renny. It's an interesting conjecture that you read. It is. He always comes up with those. He does. And what if the Earth was a moon? Yeah, so... Um, it would depend, you know, like a lot of these things, the answer is it depends. Depends what it's orbiting. Yes, and how far away it's orbiting it. Yeah. Um, so we might well find ourselves, uh, if you, you know, if you imagine that we were the moon of a much bigger planet, uh, for example, Jupiter, something like mm. that, we would definitely be tidally locked so that one face would face the giant planet that we were in orbit around. So our month would be the same as our day, uh, as as is the case on the moon. Um, there might be other things as well. Uh, so, um, you know, Jupiter, if you imagine it was Jupiter, Jupiter's got this enormous magnetic field and there's transfers of subatomic particles between Io in particular, Jupiter's innermost moon uh, or innermost large moon, uh, and the planet's planet itself, which is one reason why we get aurora in on Jupiter. Some of the particles come from uh, from Io. So uh, there might be phenomena like that that would be in the mix as well. So, yeah, all kinds of interesting stuff. Would, would make your know, life would be very different, wouldn't it? It could be. There might not be any life at all, um, yeah. you know, depending on what sort of a, a planet you were orbiting around. We'd be a lot shorter. Yeah, we... <laughs> Yeah, we might be. <laughs> or we might be a lot taller with the gravi- gravitational pull. Yeah, the, might be taller. That's right. The uh, it could be the yeah, the um, spaghettification that it might yes. be to us. You yeah. never know. Interesting, Renny. Love those what if questions. Thank you. And finally, from uh, a uh, Twitter. Oh no, I can't call it that anymore. What's it called? X from an X listener who uh, calls himself Cowboy Tune. Hi guys. Question for you: How small can a black hole be? 
Uh, if you had a black hole the size of a tennis ball or something, how close could you get to it before noticing its effects, e.g. time passing more slowly as you, uh, as opposed to everyone else? Um, can they get that small? I, I know they did some tiny ones at the Large Hadron Collider. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. yeah. Um, well, it, it actually, it was, uh, yeah. you know, that was one of the um, criticisms when the, when the new improved Large Hadron Collider was switched on Mm. 2011 or 2010, thereabouts. Uh, we destroyed the planet. People saying, yeah, you're going to create black holes. Uh, and um, so what the Large Hadron Collider did was uh, on there, I don't know whether you remember this, they had a whole lot of webcams showing, you know, security cameras on the site. And uh, if you clicked on them, uh, you could watch them and suddenly they'd all start disappearing and getting sucked in because uh, a black hole had been created. <laughs> I didn't good. know they did that. No, it was it was very nicely done, and uh, the answer, of course, is that nature throws subatomic particles at us with much higher energies than the Large Hadron Collider could ever create, so uh, they don't produce black holes. So no, but um, so there, there is a bit of an answer to this. Now, the um, if it, there is a theory, and it was Hawking actually who, who basically proposed this, that in the aftermath of the Big Bang. You got a whole series of what are called primordial black holes, which came in all sizes. They weren't just the mass of stars; they were all sizes. Mm. Um, some gigantic ones, uh, as well as some little ones, little mini black holes. Um, and in fact, they were for a while postulated as the cause of dark matter, uh, or being the source of dark matter. That these mini black holes were dark matter. You know, w w what we see is dark matter because there were so many of them. There's no, no real evidence that that happened. Uh, it's still a conjecture that people look at and think about. Um, but uh, it's interesting that um, that uh, uh, we, our, our ex-listener, <laughs> uh, Twitter listener, former Twitter listener, um, postulated the size of a tennis ball because that, if I remember rightly, is about the size of the event horizon of a black hole of the mass of the Earth. I think it's ah. 18, 18 millimetres. Wow, millimeters. there you are. So okay. a black, an Earth-mass black hole would have an event horizon the size of a tennis ball. Uh, I don't know how far away from it you would have to be before you were immune to its gravitational effects. Probably you could get fairly close before you started getting spaghettified. Uh, but I wouldn't trust it, I have to say. If somebody brought me a black hole the size of a tennis ball and say, take it away, I don't want to be anywhere near it. Just put it in an aluminium box. That aluminium's awesome stuff. Yeah, or a paperback. Or a paperback. Put a put a put uh, the black hole in an aluminium foil container in a, in a paperback. Yeah, that, that would do it. We'd be, we'd be fine. Mm. Uh, but we are learning that there um, are all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful things with black holes. Uh, we've still got a lot to learn about them. We're, we're now able to image a couple of yeah, them. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we, we've got a reasonable look. But, uh, yeah, so many questions yet to answer about them. So many. Um, but thanks, uh, Cowboy Tuned. Love, uh, love your question and appreciate you sending it in. Also, thanks to Rennie and Rusty for sending in questions. Uh, we've got... Um, uh, episode 370 coming up soon so if you can get some questions into us uh that would be great 
just go to our website. I'm going to do that right now. And there it is. Uh, click on the AMA tab. You click on that and it says um, sod off. We don't want to know. Uh, but it also says uh, you can um, answer, you can download your question uh, just by uh, filling in the form or you can uh, send an audio question. And the other way is to click on the right hand side, send us your voice message. And voila, if you've got a device with a microphone, easiest, easiest pie to send us a question. Just uh, don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from is what I'm trying to say. Oh, it's been a long day. Yes, what is it, 6 a.m.? Gosh, it's all, you know. <laughs> um, we're done, Fred. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure, Andrew. Uh, always good to talk and always good to hear these listener questions as well. Oh, they're great, aren't they? Yeah, I really enjoy them. Splendid. Yes. Mm, yep. All right. Take care, Fred. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks a lot. See you soon. You too. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and uh, thanks to Hugh in the studio for doing... Yeah, we'll do that next week. Uh, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, it's always great fun. We'll catch you on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts Podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.